Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is the podcast where you'll hear all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into its causes. All that without the hype and distortion of other mental health media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Endeavoring to better inform the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome back to the first edition of Psychiatry Today for 2017. Uh, This edition pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday, January the 4th, 2017. Happy New Year to all of you. Hope that your holidays and New Year's celebration went well, was enjoyable and safe, and not too overindulgent. And to start off the new year, when I saw this article, I thought to myself, well, it pertains to easily the biggest news story, not just mental health news story, although there were certainly no shortage of mental health angles to the biggest news story of 2016, of course I'm talking about the election. And no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it certainly had a major impact on people's emotions one way or the other. When I saw this article, I thought, wow, this this is very, very pertinent and uh, very relevant and very interesting. Um, it says, hardwired, the brain's circuitry for political belief. Okay, well, no, we don't have specific circuitry in our brain that's specific for political belief. But nonetheless, what some University of Southern California scientists have done is they've done some brain imaging and they've gained some insights into the effects of strong political beliefs on the brain. And I think it's very interesting. And uh, so let's see what they found. This USC-led study confirms what seems increasingly true in American politics. People become more hard-headed in their political beliefs when provided with contradictory evidence. Now think about that for a minute. If someone has very strong political beliefs and you give them very blatantly and clearly contradictory evidence to their beliefs, instead of thinking, hmm, you may have a point there. Maybe uh, I need to rethink this or maybe I don't have the right idea about this. No, quite the contrary. People become more entrenched in their beliefs and they ignore perfectly good evidence that's contradictory to their views. Again, this does not matter what side of the aisle you're on. The brain is not a partisan organ, okay? 
but what they've done, the neuroscientists at what's called the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC said findings from a functional MRI study seem especially relevant to how people responded to political news stories, fake or credible, throughout the election. Again, the idea of fake news, uh, things that were posted mostly on social media that were just made-up stories disguised as real news, that was another uh, big <laughs> news item from 2016. Uh, political beliefs are not unlike religious beliefs in the respect that both are part of who you are and important to the social circle to which you belong. To consider an alternative view, you would have to consider an alternative version of yourself. This is probably why it's so difficult for people to look at other views, even with strong evidence. To determine which brain networks respond when someone holds firmly to a belief, the neuroscientists with, again, the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC, compared whether and how much people change their minds on non-political and political issues when provided with counter-evidence. They discovered that people were more flexible when asked to consider the strength of their belief in non-political statements. For example, uh, here's a non-political statement. Albert Einstein was the greatest physicist of the 20th century. So that being a non-political statement, if someone didn't already believe that, but they were given evidence, they're more likely to come around to agreeing with that statement. But when it came to reconsidering their political beliefs, such as whether the United States should reduce funding for the military, they would not budge. The study was published on December 23rd in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. And for the study, the neuroscientists recruited 40 people who were self-declared liberals. The scientists then examined through functional MRI, how their brains responded when their beliefs were challenged. Now, a couple of points before we go further into the methods and the results. Uh, I'll address why they only looked at liberals and should this have been done with liberals and conservatives and how would the results have changed. Also, just to remind those of you who are not familiar with functional MRI, this is not your typical MRI scanner that you might have been sent to by your doctor if you're hurt or sick for a sophisticated imaging study. Functional MRI uh, is taking a look at brain activity while you're undergoing thought or deliberation or emotion, and you can see what areas of the brain are active in real time as people engage in certain thoughts, feelings, or mental tasks. Now, during their brain imaging sessions, participants were presented with eight political statements that they had said they believe just as strongly as a set of eight non-political statements. 
They were then shown five counterclaims that challenged each statement. Participants rated the strength of their belief in the original statement on a scale of 1 to 7 after reading each counterclaim. The scientists then studied their brain scans to determine which areas became most engaged during these challenges. Participants did not change their beliefs much, if at all, when provided with evidence that countered political statements, such as the laws regulating gun ownership in the United States should be made more restrictive. But the scientists noticed the strengths of their beliefs weakened by one or two points when challenged on non-political topics, such as whether Thomas Edison had invented the light bulb. This, just to give you an example, the participants were shown counter-statements that prompted some feelings of doubt, such as, nearly 70 years before Edison, Humphrey Davy demonstrated an electric lamp to the Royal Society. So that's a non-political issue. People are more willing to be less firm in their beliefs about something like that than when it came to a political issue like gun ownership restrictions. The study found that people who were most resistant to changing their beliefs had more activity in the amygdala. The amygdala are a pair of almond-shaped areas near the center of the brain. And then also another area called the insular cortex. And this was, uh, again, these areas were more active compared to people who were more willing to change their minds. The activity in these areas of the brain, which are both important for emotion and decision-making, may relate to how we feel when we encounter evidence against our beliefs. Now, this is an important point. The amygdala in particular is known to be especially involved in perceiving threat and anxiety. The other area, the insular cortex, processes feelings from the body, and it is important for detecting the emotional salience of stimuli. That is consistent with the idea that when we feel threatened, anxious, or emotional, then we are less likely to change our minds. And apparently, we cling to political beliefs very strongly, such that when presented with counter-evidence, we perceive that as a threat, and this increases our sense of anxiety and our body's feelings of arousal. Very interesting, very fascinating insights. Now, there is a system in the brain called the default mode network. Uh, this is just what's keeping everything running when you're not engaged in any particular task. This network surged in activity when participants' political beliefs were challenged. These areas of the brain that we're talking about have been linked to thinking about who we are and with the kind of rumination or deep thinking that takes us away from the here and now. The researcher said that this latest study, along with one conducted earlier this year, indicate that the default mode network is important for high-level thinking 
about important personal beliefs or values. Understanding when and why people are likely to change their minds is an urgent objective. Knowing how and which statements may persuade people to change their political beliefs could be key for society's progress and obviously would be very important for any uh, political entity to be aware of, to bring people around to their point of view. The findings could apply to circumstances outside of politics, including how people respond to fake news stories. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break here. We'll finish up our thoughts on this study and have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about what I think is a fascinating study where some neuroscientists at USC found that areas of the brain involved in perceiving emotional aspects of threat and anxiety were more active when people's strongly held political beliefs were challenged by counter-evidence And uh, to me, this is extremely important in the wake of this very polarizing election that we just went through. Now, the 
researchers conclude that they should acknowledge that emotion plays a role in cognition, in thinking, in deliberation, and in how we decide what is true and what is not true. And we should not expect to be just as if we were dispassionate computers. We are biological organisms, and therefore we're going to interpret information that we're given through the emotions that we have, the strongly held beliefs that determine how we see ourselves and whether information we consider threatens those beliefs and therefore causes us to have anxiety over our sense of self. Now, a couple of points about this. Again, all the study subjects were liberal and um, the questions they were asked were about um, political issues that are important to liberals. I know what you're going to say. Well, hey, you know, these are brain scientists and maybe they tend to be more liberal or you're more likely to say, hey, this was done in California, a very liberal state. But I really have to say, I think if we turned it around to the other side of the aisle and we studied conservatives and the scientists and then, then gave them <clears throat> information that challenged their conservative beliefs. Let's just turn the two questions the opposite way that, uh, you know, evidence to the uh, contrary that military budget should be increased or that gun restrictions should be lifted. Um, I'm certain they would react the same way. Again, the brain is not a partisan organ, so no matter what your beliefs, I'm sure they would have found that when challenged, the amygdala and the insular cortex would show higher activity to these closely held beliefs when compared with non-political things such as a claim that Albert Einstein was a great, the greatest physicist of the 20th century or that Edison may not have been the original inventor of the light bulb after all. Okay, so that, just want to address that issue. Now, so what, now that we have this information, what do we do with it? Um, is the conclusion to be taken from this that, well, since these political beliefs are hardwired and people cling to them and perceive any attempt to change them as a threat which arouses anxiety and uh, is it therefore the case that there's no point in trying to change these beliefs because you're just going to make people dig in their heels even more? Uh, is that the conclusion to be drawn? Uh, there's certainly no method they tested to try to overcome this tendency, uh, that would certainly severely increase the creep factor that they would find a way for media or advertisers or politicians, God forbid, to be able to modify people's closely held beliefs. No, it's not about that at all. Um, but it does provide interesting insights and Perhaps it will eventually lead to better knowledge on how to influence people's opinions and bring them around to another point of view. Um, I think 
at the bare minimum, it does serve to add some urgency to the need to fight fake news. And uh, leaders in the social media and technology communities uh, got the message after the election that uh, while they may deny that that fake news had a big uh, effect on the outcome, and it most likely didn't, but still the fact that more than half of people get most of their news from social media, um, something needs to be done to make sure the information that's put out there is accurate and that it's easier to get something taken down when um, you know it's obviously a fake story put up there to further someone's agenda. And again, this happens on both sides of the aisle where you know fake news I don't see as a partisan issue either. Well, there you have it. Again, fascinating how scientists can look inside the brain and see which areas are more active during specific types of thought and deliberation and feeling and emotion. Um, so we'll see what happens with the effect uh, of closely held political beliefs and fake news as things go forward uh, once power is transferred in uh, less than a few weeks. Let's move on to another very astounding study that I want to tell you about. And this is that one out of six adults in the United States say they have taken psychiatric drugs. And let's say at least one psychiatric drug. Usually that would have been an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, and most have been doing so for a year or more, according to this new analysis. Now, this isn't even up-to-date information. The report is based on 2013 government survey data on some 242 million adults and provides the most fine-grained snapshot of prescription drug use for psychological and sleep problems to date. Researchers combed household survey and insurance data compiled by the Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. They found that one in five women had reported filling at least one prescription that year, about two times the number of men who had, and that whites were about twice as likely to have done so in blacks or Hispanics. Ne nearly 85% of those who had gotten at least one drug had filled multiple prescriptions for that drug over the course of the years studied, which the authors consider to be long-term use. Okay, a few comments here about the data. Why much more women than men? Uh, demographically, women have two to three times the rates of anxiety and or depression than men. This has been well known for decades. Uh, and much more whites than blacks or Hispanics. Um, easy uh, answer there. Uh, when you're disadvantaged economically, you're less likely to have good health insurance and less likely to have access to this care. Yes, some of it may be due to strong cultural taboos against mental health issues in minority communities, but I don't think that's most of the reason. There are many uh, majority uh, 
Caucasian uh, communities where there's also very strong taboos against mental health related issues, including here in the south of the United States. <clears throat> now, the, uh, the study reflects a growing acceptance of and a reliance on prescription medications to manage common emotional problems. Now, that is certainly worrisome, and as, as big a proponent of the benefits of psychiatric medication as I am, uh, is it possible that a number of these people taking the medications uh, could have gotten benefit from non-medication treatments, such as counseling or psychotherapy? Well, long-time listeners will know my answer to that question. There's not enough commitment to the longer-term lack of quick fix that psychotherapy entails, and uh, there's not as much help from health insurance to pay for psychotherapy. Um, there's too few providers who accept health insurance for it because the rates they would get from health insurance are insultingly low, and so it becomes very costly. The pills are a faster and cheaper fix. Now, the most commonly used type of drug was an antidepressant. Now, the term antidepressant is somewhat confusing. It implies that depression is all the drugs treat, and therefore that you need something other than that if your problem is mostly anxiety as opposed to depression. Nothing could be further from the truth. Antidepressants treat anxiety equally as well as they do depression. It's just an unfortunate case of terminology making you think that that's all they do. The anti-anxiety drugs are medications called uh, like Xanax or Ativan or Klonopin, <clears throat> newer versions of their older cousins Valium, Librium, and Cirax. Uh, these are highly addictive and highly dangerous sedative drugs. And then you also have the sleeping pills like Ambien and Lunesta. Uh, and while they're touted as being safe and non-addictive, nothing could be further from the truth there. Sleeping pills are extremely addictive and dangerous. They affect a different subunit on the same receptor in the brain as the receptors that Xanax and Ativan and Clonopin and Valium affect. Um, so the sedatives and the sleeping pills uh, can have withdrawal effects like panic attacks and sleep problems, and yet many people are on them long term. The prescribing of these anti-anxiety and sleeping pills is strongly regulated in this and other countries because of the drug's tendency to be habit-forming. To discover that 8 in 10 adults are taking psychiatric drugs long-term raises safety concerns, given that there is reason to believe some of this continued use is due to dependence and withdrawal symptoms. So what is the take-home from the data in this study? Um, it's that the prescribing of anti-anxiety drugs and sleeping pills should be closely monitored and regulated because of the long-term safety issues and that patients who need help with depression and anxiety need more and better options, including non-medication options. 
We're going to take another commercial break. We'll have more mental health-related news on the other side of that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Another major impact of last November's election uh, besides the obvious uh, presidential election, was all the various states which voted on either medical and or recreational use of marijuana. And it's become very clear that attitudes toward marijuana use in this country are becoming much more relaxed and many more people are coming out in favor of legalizing it, this despite Decades and decades of very strong evidence of the damage that marijuana use can do, um, especially to young people and especially the brain, although certainly the lungs and the heart as well. Uh, So even if it's not politically correct or popular, I'm going to continue to speak out against these attitudes and discuss with you evidence that... You know, this is going to increasingly do damage. For example, um, Colorado State University is studying this issue. Uh, As you know, that was one of the first states to legalize recreational use of marijuana. And apparently for those who are suffering from depression or anxiety to begin with, using cannabis for relief may not be the long-term answer. This is according to new research from a team at Colorado State seeking scientific clarity on how cannabis, particularly chronic heavy use, affects neurological activity, including the processing of emotions. Researchers have published a study in uh, a journal called Peer J, 
describing their findings from an in-depth questionnaire-based analysis of 178 college-aged legal users of cannabis. Recreational cannabis became legal in Colorado in 2014. Since then, seven other states have enacted legalization for recreational use, while many others allow medical use. One thing they wanted to focus on was the significance of Colorado, the first state to legalize recreational cannabis, and its own unique population and use that occurs there. Through the study, which was based solely upon self-reported use of the drug, the researchers sought to draw correlations between depressive or anxious symptoms and cannabis consumption. They found that those respondents categorized with subclinical depression who reported using the drug to treat their depressive symptoms scored lower on their anxiety symptoms than on their depressive symptoms. So they were actually more depressed than they were anxious. The same was true for self-reported anxiety sufferers. They were found to be more anxious than they were depressed. In other words, if they were using cannabis for self-medication, it wasn't doing what they thought it was doing. The questionnaire called R-CUE, or Recreational Cannabis Use Evaluation, took a deep dive into users' habits, including questions about whether users smoked the drug or consumed stronger products like hash oils or edibles. The researchers are particularly motivated to study biochemical and neurological reactions from higher tetrahydrocannabinol or THC products available in the legal market, which can be up to 80 to 90% THC. The researchers are quick to point out that their analysis does not say that cannabis causes depression or anxiety, nor that it cures it. But it underscores the need for further study around how the brain is affected by the drug in light of legalization and by some accounts more widespread use in Colorado since legalization. For example, there is a common perception that cannabis relieves anxiety, yet research has yet to support this claim fully. I would like to mention here myself that in terms of evaluating patients, I have often found that patients with severe anxiety will report that cannabis actually makes it worse. There is the apocryphal story of the young person when they get high on marijuana for the first time completely getting frightened and afraid and insisting that their friends bring them to the emergency room thinking they've done something horrible to themselves. This reaction, quite common actually, is quite simply a panic attack. That's basically all that is. In people who are vulnerable to having anxiety or panic attacks, smoking marijuana the first time is a very common way for one to be induced. Now, uh, past research 
has shown that chronic use of marijuana reduces naturally occurring endocannabinoids in the brain, which are known to play a role in physiological processes, including mood and memory. That's right, we have our own natural endocannabinoids in the brain, and there are cannabinoid receptors in the brain for these chemicals. Um, <clears throat> to those of you who think this is surprising, that our brain produces its own cannabinoids, well, it also produces its own natural opioids, and there are receptors in the brain for those as well. Now, <clears throat> there is some research to suggest that cannabis can help with anxiety and depression at first, but it has the reverse effect later on. Due to the federal government's stringent regulations around researching cannabis, which is a Schedule I controlled drug, the general public's perception of how it affects the brain is often based in myths. There are currently no Colorado State University research labs that administer cannabis to study participants as administration of the drug for research would require special licensing and security. Moving forward, the researchers want to refine their results and concentrate on respondents' level and length of exposure to legally available high THC products like concentrates and hash oils around which there has been little scientific inquiry. It is important not to demonize cannabis, but also not to glorify it, the researchers said. What they want to do is study it and understand what it does. And that is what drives them. And <clears throat> they certainly will have no shortage of subjects given the much more widespread use since legalization in Colorado two years ago. Following up on that study, I saw something much more deeply disturbing that I want to report to you. It turns out that more pregnant women are using pot, according to a recent study. And there's evidence that links drug use to low birth weights and other ill effects for the fetus. Um, United States women are increasingly using marijuana during pregnancy, sometimes to treat morning sickness, according to new reports. Though the actual numbers are small, the trend raises concerns because of evidence linking the drug with low birth weights and other problems. In 2014, almost 4% of pregnant women said they'd recently used marijuana, up from 2.4% in 2002, this according to an analysis of annual drug use surveys. Dr. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, said the results raised concerns and urged doctors and other health care providers to avoid recommending the drug for pregnant women. Volko commented in an editorial published online on December 19th 
with a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. A separate study in the same issue of the journal found that almost 10% of adult marijuana users in the United States, 3 million people, have used it at least partly for medical reasons. 20% of these users live in states where medical marijuana isn't legal. Volko noted that laws legalizing medical marijuana in 29 states and Washington, D.C., do not list pregnancy-related conditions among allowed uses. But the laws also don't prohibit that use and don't include warnings about possible harms to the fetus. Strong evidence of harms is limited, but besides low birth weights, newborns whose mothers used marijuana while pregnant may face increased risks for anemia, and other problems requiring intensive care. Memory and attention problems also have been found in older children whose moms used marijuana in pregnancy. How marijuana might lead to those problems is unclear, but one theory is that it might interfere with formation of nerve cells and circuits in the brain during fetal development. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists discourages marijuana use by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Both studies analyzed data from annual United States government surveys on drug use that are based on participants' self-reporting. One focused on 200,510 women of reproductive age who participated in the 2002 to 2014 surveys. Recent use, that is within the past month, among non-pregnant women also increased over those years from about 6% to 9%, that according to researchers from Columbia University Medical Center. Doctors should screen and counsel pregnant women and women contemplating pregnancy about prenatal marijuana use. Well, we have to take another commercial break here. We'll have more about that study and other news about the brain in pregnancy. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Okay, and we're talking about disturbing information on more pregnant women using marijuana while they're pregnant. Um, now, again, there was uh, another study besides the pregnant women study. Uh, it was led by in the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, Dr. Wilson Compton, focused on past year marijuana use by nearly 100,000 adults aged 18 and up who participated in the 2013 to 2014 survey. About 13% said they had used marijuana. That translates into about 30 million adults. Overall, 90% used it for non-medical reasons only, and 6% used it only for medical reasons. Prevalence of medical use was higher in states where that use is legal, but the researchers say the results suggest some doctors in other states may not feel bound by restrictions. Well, I certainly think that's true. Uh, I think if a physician thinks it may help a patient uh, for one reason or another, not sure why they would, but if they do, they're going to recommend it, or at least if a patient brings the issue to them and asks them about uh, potentially using it, they're going to uh, say, yeah, sure, it might help. But it is very, very disturbing to hear the increased incidence over the last uh, 12 to 14 years, whatever it is, that uh, more and more women are using marijuana during pregnancy. Um, this is a, a very sad state of affairs. And, um, you know, uh, there's been a very good public health campaign over many years alerting women to the dangers of using alcohol during pregnancy and uh, the adverse consequences that can occur, uh, most especially fetal alcohol syndrome, which can lead to facial abnormalities and impaired intelligence. But now we need to launch a public health campaign against use of marijuana during pregnancy to prevent this from causing fetal abnormalities and bringing kids into the world with a handicap um, that uh, could have been avoided if their mothers had made the right choices, uh, quite frankly. You know, that's going to sound uh, negative and critical and unpopular and not politically correct, but uh, again, uh, I think uh, it's incumbent upon women who's pregnant to take good care of their health for the sake of their unborn child. And I cannot see why anyone would think smoking marijuana during pregnancy would be a healthy choice. Now, following up on that article, here is an article about um, a study showing brain changes during pregnancy. Now, when I first saw that title, I said, oh, so they're going to finally explain the phenomena known as baby brain, right? Well, no. Unfortunately, it really doesn't relate to that. And what do I mean by baby brain? 
Well, if any of you listening are women who have had children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My female patients have often reported this to me that after having children, their brains don't seem to function as well. Trouble with thinking, focus, concentration, and especially short-term memory. No, this is another issue, not shedding light on the phenomenon of baby brain. But it's still interesting to see uh, what changes do take place in pregnancy in the brain. Because pregnancy affects not only a woman's body, it changes parts of her brain too. Researchers compared brain scans of women before and after pregnancy, and they spotted some differences in 11 different locations in the brain. They also found hints that the alterations help women prepare for motherhood. For example, they might help a mother understand the needs of her infant. <clears throat> Researchers presented the results in a paper released on December 19th in the journal Nature Neuroscience. It includes data on 25 Spanish women scanned before and after their first pregnancies, along with 20 women who didn't get pregnant during the study. The brain changes in the pregnancy group emerged from comparisons of those two groups. The results were consistent. A computer program was able to tell which women had gotten pregnant just by looking at the results of the MRI scans. That's very distinct. And the changes, first documented an average of 10 weeks after giving birth, were mostly still present two years after childbirth. That's based on follow-up with 11 study participants. Further work showed they're a motherhood thing. No brain changes were seen in first-time fathers. The women showed no declines on tests of memory. Now, I hear you women who maybe have experienced baby brain thinking, what? How can that possibly be? That doesn't make any sense. Well, I don't know what to tell you, but again, uh, they did check for that and didn't find to be a problem. It could very well be that while many women think there is such a thing as baby brain and complain of problems with memory, that I suspect they're selling themselves short. I suspect that while they may struggle at times to juggle more information and more details, they're doing better than they thought. Now, based on prior research findings, the researchers think the brain changes they did see happened during pregnancy rather than after childbirth. But what's going on? Why are these changing changes taking place? And what purpose do they serve? Well, researchers think the differences result from sex hormones that flood the brain of a pregnant woman. In the 11 locations in the brain where they found changes, the MRI data indicate reductions in volume of the brain's gray matter, but it's not clear what that means. For example, it could reflect loss of brain cells or a pruning of the places where brain cells communicate. These communication junctions between brain cells are called synapses. Losing some synapses is not necessarily a bad thing. It happens during a hormonal surge in adolescence, 
producing more specialized and more efficient brain circuits. The researchers suspect something similar could be happening in the pregnant woman, giving her certain advantages in terms of caring for the newborn child. Some study results hint that such upgrades are what prepare a woman for motherhood. One analysis linked the brain changes to how strongly a woman felt emotionally attached to her infant. That's certainly a good thing. Uh, studies show the stronger the emotional attachment a woman feels, the better for the emotional life of that child. And when women viewed pictures of their babies, several brain regions that reacted the most were the ones that showed pregnancy-related change. In addition, the affected brain areas overlapped with circuitry that's involved in figuring out what another person is thinking and feeling, a very handy ability for a mother tending to an infant and trying to figure out what it needs. The idea of synapses being pruned in pregnancy makes a lot of sense. The brain is being shaped all the time, and the sex hormones are part of this whole set of processes that change the brain structurally. So there you have it. The brain does change during pregnancy to help the mother prepare to care for her child. And while disappointingly the study didn't address the whole baby brain issue and even found that memory didn't decline during the course of the study, perhaps what it tells us is that the brain does work differently as a result of pregnancy. And it may be that women are noticing and reacting to that change and just have to get used to the changes in how they uh, process information and uh, that may include how they remember certain details uh, more readily or not. And finally on Psychiatry Today tonight, nutrition linked to brain health and intelligence in older adults. A study of older adults links consumption of a pigment found in leafy greens to the preservation of what's called crystallized intelligence, the ability to use the skills and knowledge one has acquired over a lifetime. It was reported in the journal Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience. Lutein is one of several plant pigments that humans acquire through the diet, primarily by eating leafy green vegetables, cruciferous vegetables such as broccoli or egg yolks. Lutein accumulates in the brain, embedding in cell membranes, where it likely plays a neuroprotective role. Previous studies have found that a person's lutein status is linked to cognitive performance across the lifespan, and it accumulates in the gray matter of brain regions known to underlie the preservation of cognitive function in healthy brain aging. They enrolled 122 subjects aged 65 to 75 who were healthy, they had them solve problems and answer questions, and then they collected blood samples to measure serum levels of lutein, and they imaged their brain using MRI to measure the volume of different brain structures. They looked at specific parts of the temporal cortex, including the parahippocampal cortex, regions that are involved in the preservation of this crystallized intelligence. And they found that the higher your blood serum level of lutein, the better you tended to do on these intelligence tests. 
The lutein levels reflect only recent dietary intake, but are associated with brain concentrations of lutein, which reflect long-term dietary intake. Those with the higher blood levels of lutein also had thicker gray matter in this specific part of the temporal lobe, the parahippocampal cortex, and uh, that helps to preserve crystallized aging, uh, crystallized intelligence rather, in healthy aging. So are not sure how the lutein works. It could be that it's an anti-inflammatory role or that it enhances cell-to-cell signaling, but it may slow aging-related cognitive decline. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the first podcast of 2017. Hope you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you interesting and informative. And I hope that you have a wonderful stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and